Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. This is your host, Saqib Ali, and today we have a wonderful conversation lined up for you. I'm more excited than you, the listeners, because I've been trying to get Coach Dean Goldfein to come on the podcast for more than a month. We finally have agreed time. He was on the road with his protégés uh, covering, you know, challenger duties and ATP, uh, sorry, USJ duties in Orlando. And now finally I have my guest here. Welcome to the show, Coach Goldfein. How are you? I'm doing great, Saqib. Thank you very much for having me. No, it's, it's it's a pleasure, and I, I you know, I take I don't take these moments, uh, uh, you know, for granted. I don't work in tennis, but I've been doing this for six years, and I've talked to Craig uh, Boynton a couple of years ago, and today I think is a similar experience. I, I think I'm better interviewer since I did that two years ago. So hopefully, I'll bring some, uh, you know, insights from you to my listeners here. And so basic question, you know, we all love tennis. So, uh, how did your association with tennis start? Uh, you know, uh, I know you played some college tennis. You also played some challenger tennis in the late 80s. But how far does tennis go back to you? Just share with the listeners. Yeah, I mean, for me, it started, you know, as a kid. I mean, um, probably I think it was like nine, ten years old. And um, both my parents played. And, uh, you know, they, they you know, had me take a lesson at the, at the local club. And, um, you know, I also played baseball and played a little bit of football. So, you know, I was in different sports, but, um, you know, I kind of just gravitated towards the tennis. I, I, I enjoyed it. You know, I enjoyed the, the individual part of it, you know, that I didn't have to really rely on anybody else. Um, you know, and so started that and that was down in South Florida and, and, you know, grew up playing junior tennis down there, uh, very competitive. Um, a lot of, good players, uh, you know, came out of Florida, um, you know, and then from there I went, you know, on to Texas A&M and played four years of college tennis there. And then, like you said, a couple of, couple of years, uh, on the pro tour, um, you know, not a, nothing, nothing, uh, to really speak about, you know, playing, but, um, and I just kind of stumbled into the coaching. Um, you know, I was, I was friends with, uh, with Mary Jo Fernandez. Uh, we had the, the same coach at home. Fred Stolle was our coach. Um, down in Aventura, Florida. And, um, you know, so we knew each other. And uh, one time when I was when I was home, um, you know, in between tournaments that I was when I was still playing towards the end, and I was thinking about, you know, trying to get a quote, unquote, real job. Um, you know, I called Mary Jo up to hit because, you know, we would we would hit sometimes down there. And uh, she was starting to work with Tim Gullickson. And, um you know, but Tim didn't, did not want to really travel much. And so, uh, you know, a couple months later, um, when I was out there and, um, you know, playing still, and like I said, getting ready to hang it up, Mary Jo called me, asked me if I'd be interested in traveling with her kind of as a hitting partner slash coach. And, um, you know, I was still in love with tennis, um, but just wasn't making a living doing it. And, you know, I felt like this was an opportunity and I'd see if I liked it. And, and, you know, it, went from there. I mean, it was just a great opportunity for me to be with, a, you know, just my opinion, one of the classiest people out there, Mary Jo, and then, and then the opportunity to learn from an unbelievable coach like Tim Gullickson. No, I mean, absolutely. And I'm sure like tennis is richer with you, your contributions and we'll, we'll discuss some of the work you've done in tennis, but uh, 
just for the listeners here, even more listeners from my generation, uh, there used to be, I think the Challenger Tour used to be called, or was it called the Satellite Circuit? And if you recall, like from your time, maybe it was a Challenger Tour. How has that section of the tour evolved on your watch? Uh, as a player, as a coach, uh, is it America-based? I know there's a lot of action in America right now. You had a good, decent run in America for tournaments. But just give an overview how things have changed at that level from your recollection. Well, actually, the, the, the challenger level is, is a newer level back from when I played. Um, back when I played, the, you're right, there were the satellites, but the satellites now are what they call the futures. And, um, you know, and so back when I played the satellites, there were usually, uh, I think, like four or five of them. And, you know, you didn't get ATP points when you won matches. Like now in the futures, um, you know, you get uh, ATP points for every match you win. Back then, you got just circuit points, and then at the end of the four or five tournaments, depending on the number of circuit points that you earned, you got an equal, or not an equal number, but a corresponding number of ATP points. Um, you know, so it, it, was, it was a bit tougher back then because you, you had to play, you know, four or five weeks in a row to get those, those points. Um, you know, and, and like I said, now they just have the futures and kind of back, you know, now with the futures, the futures are kind of like, you know, uh, I'd say like single or double a baseball, maybe, you know, the, the, they're the lowest level, the introduction level. Um, there's two, two, uh, types of futures. There's, there's the 15 K's and then the 25 K's. And again, you know, with the 25 K's, you get a few more points and then, you know, you have the challenger level. Um, which that's more like triple A baseball. So it's basically, you know, the guys that are very close to breaking in, um, you know, and then also some of the players that maybe have been up there that have fallen back because of maybe injury or something like, you know, an example on this, on this last uh, tour of, of uh, you know, of challengers in the United States, um, you know, tennis Sangren. Okay. So who's been a top 30 player, I believe, you know, was, who's had some problems with injuries this year. Um, you know, he was, he was playing these tournaments, um, you know, just because again, he lost a lot of his points and his ranking has dropped. Um, you know, so that's kind of how that is. And then in just in regards to the, the world, I mean, we actually probably in the United States, I mean, you know, um, the, you're right in the fall, we have a lot of these challengers, um, you know, in, in the summer, we usually have a fair amount too. um, the spring and the, in the, in the winter, you know, at the beginning of the year, not as many, um, we've been hurt a little bit just because of, of COVID, uh, you know, the world economy, it's just obviously tougher, you know, with, with how things went with COVID and obviously a lot of lost revenues getting the sponsors. So, so, you know, it did take a little bit of a hit, you know, also to the USTA putting them on just because of obviously the, the year, um, you know, the first year at the open, not making the same revenue because there were no fans. And then, and then last year, um, you know, not having as many fans, um, this year helped a lot because, uh, you know, the open went really well in the USTA, um, you know, made, a, made a fair amount of money. Um, so hopefully moving forward, we'll be all right. Uh, because, you know, the USTA, they, they give money for these tournaments. Um, you know, there's a budget they put into to professional tournaments and that's challengers and and futures and um you know so that's 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 an important part of it um but a lot around the world i mean especially in europe 
Europe, there's a lot of these challengers um, that, that go on. And, and um, I mean, you see it now, especially like in Italy. Italy has, has tournaments almost every week, you know, and that's futures and challengers. And, um, you know, I think it's not the only reason, but it definitely helps, that, you know, and shows that they have so many of, of uh, you know, players that are ranked up there now because it's nice when you can, you know, stay close to home, right, and, and, and be familiar with your surroundings and, and, you know, and play these tournaments and not have to travel around the world. Um, but these tournaments, yes, are, are all over the world, um, you know, uh, and, you know, the U.S. is, is you know, getting back to where we were, you know, in regards to having the, the amount that we, we need to have to help our players. No, I think there's a lot to unpack there for the listeners. And you're right. I think Italy has definitely been talk of the town for the last couple of years since COVID took over. And you can see, I, I even, I think, tried to connect the dots in my own naive mind. I was telling one of my guests that the base in Italy with all these challenger events and the talent coming through, like the Musetti, Sinner, Berrettini generation, is no coincidence that they try the ATP World Tour finals moved to Turin in Milan because... It, it it just to me is so reminiscent of the Becker Steak days in Germany when I don't know like what the challenge scene was, but the Germany was like the second powerhouse out, outside of US and they held the year end championships. So I don't know. In my mind, there's a correlation uh, because that could be the next big market outside of US, but let's see how it goes. So, so yeah, I mean, you, you yeah. also work for the USTA. And uh, when I decided to get you on the podcast, I tried to, you know, reach you. I was excited because you were coaching one of my more free one of my upcoming favorite players in Sebi Korda. But now you're also working with uh, Ben Shelton and Alexander uh, Kovacevic. Is that how you say it? Yes. Yes, that's correct. Yep. So just fill in with the listeners because, you know, tennis is a very fluid situation. Of course, I didn't know you your role with USTA. So please uh, tell our listeners the transition from a Seb Korda to the duo you are working with. How, how does these things work and what's the roadmap like? Okay. Um, well, basically, I mean, my... My area of, I guess you'd call it expertise or the area that I'm assigned to, you know, for the USTA is, is our transitional pros. So really what, what you know, uh, my role is, is for, you know, players that, that are interested, um, you know, in ones that we feel have the potential to, to be top, you know, 50 top 10 players, Grand Slam champions is, is that, um, the USTA will assign me to these players. And again, that's if they want it, um, you know, if, if they want me to help them, if they want my help, um, you know, so they'll assign me to these players. And, and basically my, my role is to educate them, to coach them, um, you know, to help bring them up the, the rankings and, and, you know, get to a point uh, in the top 50 where, you know, they can now afford or top hundred, top 50 to, to put their own team around them now, because, you know, you notice with all these top players, they have performance teams, you know, they have uh, obviously the coach, they have their strength and conditioning coach. Some of them have physios. Uh, some of them have uh, mental coaches, right. You know, um, they all, they put these performance teams around them and it's, and it's, you know, it's, it's an important part of, of the whole thing. And um, you know, so when they get up there, that's what, they're supposed to do. And, and, and obviously at that point too, you know, because tennis is a very expensive sport, um, you know, all the travel. And then obviously if you, you, you have a coach paying for your coach, right. You know, we, the USTA, right. They provide me. So the player does not have to pay for, for that. He does not have to pay for, for my coaching. 
Um, he does not have to pay for my travel, any of my expenses. The USTA, you know, pays for all of that. And so that obviously helps too in taking some of the pressure off. And now once they get inside the top 50, now it's their responsibility to put their, their team around them. Um, that might mean that maybe they feel like, okay, I want to keep Dean, um, you know, so I'm going to either hire him away from the USTA or maybe, you know, we can work something out where he does some weeks with me. And an example of that was with David Nankin, who's another one of our USTA coaches. He was with Taylor Fritz for a long time um, until actually this year, uh, you know, and he was an employee, but Taylor was doing very well, but, you know, they worked it out where David did some weeks and not all of them. Um, you know, now with Sebi, I was involved with Sebi for really the past probably five years, um, you know, to, to varying degrees, the last couple, um, pretty much almost a, a lot of the year. And, um, you know, this year it was just kind of a natural transition. I did the beginning of the year with him, um, you know, down in Australia and then in the, in the States. And then, you know, what we've always done in the past is he would go to Europe for the clay and then he would have a Czech coach work with him over there. Um, you know, and, and cause his family obviously is originally from there and, uh, he did that. And then, um, you know, decided to, uh, try do a trial period with Xavier Melise. And, um, and so that freed me up now. And then it actually worked out perfectly because then when Ben Shelton, you know, finished, uh, the school year and won NCAAs in May and, and, and was interested because his dad, Brian, obviously has his responsibilities from the university of Florida team that, you know, he was looking for someone to coach, to work with him, to coach him on the road, that it kind of worked, you know, perfectly. And same with, you know, Alex Kovacevic. Um, he was one of our young up-and-coming players. So uh, in June, I started with them and, and uh, you know, and it's gone gone very well since for, for both of them. Yeah, that's uh, was kind of uh, really paves the path because at our level, some of us do follow tennis, but, you know, ATP site was still listing you or maybe still does list you as Seb Koda's coach. And uh, that's why it kind of, uh, when I asked you yesterday for my prep, I know you were with Shelton. I just wanted to make sure what the association is. Are you, uh, you know, overseeing both players? So a right. couple, of, couple of questions on Koda before we move on to Shelton. So of course, mm-hmm. you, I'm sure you're proud of the work you've done with him. Alex mm-hmm. Kreskin of the Crack Rackets podcast was here and we were both discussing Seb Koda and we both are very high on his potential. Yeah. I compare him to Marat Safin's backhand, and and you can dismiss it if it if the if the comparison. Oh no, does. no, I I agree with you a hundred percent. I mean, he has he has a, a world world class backhand. I mean, it is it is a weapon, and I, I don't disagree with you at all. Okay, and the other thing was he's twenty two, right? And we both also said that he's one hundred seventy five lbs, and you know he's growing. Uh, and then Alex said he has he's started doing weights now. So just talk about this kind of stuff. He's a world-class player, but when does, like you said, they have like fitness trainers and, you know, the whole uh, training management team. So when does weightlifting and all these, are these specific for different players? Like say the Shelton, for example, can start lifting at 20 when Koda will start doing lifting at 22. Maybe he had, has, has had injuries. My larger point is Sasha Zverev at 6'6 is 198. And when I saw Seb Koda's weight at 175, I thought, wow, if this guy can get under 20 pounds of muscle and I have no idea how tennis coaching works. I thought, you know, that probably is the next step. Do you want to weigh in on this? Yes. No, you're a hundred percent correct about that. And, and, you know, one, I don't think he, even though he's listed at 175, I think he's, he definitely weighs more now because he, he, he has already, if you really notice, especially in his legs, 
I mean, he, he, his legs now, I mean, they used to be bean poles, you know, but, but now he, he's, there's, there's some meat there. And, um, you know, so, but each player is different and, and you, you can't rush it. Um, you know, you have to obviously wait until, uh, they're physically, you know, um, matured to a certain point. And, you know, and, and, and again, each player matures at a different speed. So, um, and you're right. I mean, and you have to look at the player's body type, um, you know, Sebi, uh, you know, started this probably now maybe, I don't know, three years ago and, and you know, and, and has come a long way and he's definitely much stronger than he used to be. And you can see that as opposed to someone like Ben Shelton, who's, I mean, physically already, yeah, pretty, pretty, you know, advanced, um, but he still has plenty of, of room for improvement also, um, you know, and then you look at someone like Alcaraz, right, who. I mean, physically, I mean, you look at this kid and I mean, he's only 19. Right. And so obviously he's he's matured a lot sooner than than, you know, either Sebi, you know, or Ben. So, um, you know, each player is different. It's a, it's an incredibly vital part because one. Right. You need the strength, you know, and in, 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 uh, to be a successful tennis player, you know, to play the game. Obviously, the, you know, your core strength is so huge your lower body strength, your upper body strength isn't as important, although it is, you know, in the back, but, you know, it's not like um, you need big biceps or, you know, a huge chest or anything like that. But, but, you know, definitely the core in, in the legs for stability is, is huge. Um, you know, and, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, so that's, a, you know, part of it as well as, you know, just how long and taxing and physical, you know, the year is and how physical this game has become. And, um, you know, if you're not, you know, we saw that a lot with Sebi, um, his body was breaking down and, um, you know, and it's just cause it wasn't ready for the, the rigors, you know, of, of, of the professional tour, you know, week in and week out. And, um, so you have to, to really be smart about that and, and, and make sure you don't overplay until, well, you don't ever want to overplay, but you know, that you're not doing too much before your body's ready for that next step. Sure. And I, I haven't seen as much of Shelton. I tried to catch some of his matches on the Challenger TV. He does look impressive. But the camera angle, uh, for someone like me, is not... So I won't make any assessment, but like Koda, he also has, I think, a very heavy ball and a good kick serve, if I'm correct. So so let's move on to yeah. Shelton and Kova, right? That's what she's called? Kovacevic? Yeah, Kova. Yeah, I call him Kova. Kova, yeah. all right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so when you, of course, this is a UST assignment. You have two new players. How difficult it is for a coach of your caliber to change gears because, you know, Corda had different needs and now you're overseeing two players with extremely high potential. So do you coach them together or you have different blocks? Do, I know they probably hit together. They were also playing three straight weeks in Challenger and they probably even played each other, I think, twice. So how does that uh, training regime uh, gets played out? I'm sure you have help, but uh, from from a coach's point of view, I want to explore a coach's brain. How does that work when you have two two proteges? How how do you how do you balance that out? Well, first, I mean, you know, the first question about you know making that that um you know that that transfer from you know a sevi to these guys. I mean, it's not too difficult. Um, you know, I'm um, you know, when I when I start coaching anyone, um, I'm not just going to come in there and start saying, hey, you need to do this and you need to change that and and you know, this is what you have to do. Um, you know, that, 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 you know, wouldn't be a good thing. So, you know, usually what I come in and when I do, when I come, you know, start working with someone is, um, get to know them 
first and foremost. I mean, get it, get to know them, get to know what their what their needs are, what their you know how how you know to motivate them, how they react to certain things, um, you know, and 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 then slowly you know work with them. And and you know, my big way of of coaching is is a lot of asking questions, right? And 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 you know that way is the best I think way to to get to know them and 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 get them to to buy in and to make some of the decisions on their own, you know, some of the changes on their own. And I think, you know, when they can, you know, that's the best way to get them to take ownership. Um, you know, so, so that part is easy um, in regards to coaching both of them. Um, you know, I, I haven't, because what happened is, is Kovacevic actually was done with school last year. I started working with him. I did a training block with him um, in, I think it was, uh end of april beginning of may um i did like a three-week training block with him ben was still in school um so i didn't do that training block um you know and and uh you know so it's you know they do though on the road practice sometimes together they have played each other a lot they actually like you said they played each other two times this this fall and they actually played two times this summer and um you know, and, and so for me, that's, you know, I just kind of sit there and watch and hope it's a good match and, you know, and give feedback afterwards, um, you know, but uh, in regards to, to the actual coaching, it's, it's not that difficult um, for me. I think, you know, I'm able to, to, to manage it. Uh, and, you know, the thing about Ben also is that Ben, you know, like now during this off time, he's at home. Um, I mean, Brian, you know, his dad is, is, is his main coach. I mean, he's, you know, he's the, he's the guy. And, um, you know, so he's there with him now, obviously we talk a lot and like Brian came to the last tournament in Champaign. And so, you know, we talked about things that, uh, that Ben needs to work on in the off season, um, you know, just in regards to his tennis in regards to his strength and conditioning, um, you know, and then I will go up there for, for a few days here and there. Um, you know, so, uh, so that's good. And then, you know, in regards to, uh, Kova, um, he lives down in Boca. Um, you know, he has a pretty good situation down there and just that Tommy Paul's down there. Um, Alex Rybakov, he's got some good players down there. Andy Murray's going to be down there a little bit training. Um, so, you know, have good players, but he's going to come up here too. And, and, you know, I'll get some work in with him. Um, you know, and then what I'm, what, what I'd like to do is get them and then a few other guys here up here in Orlando, um, the week before Christmas, uh, to just play a bunch of matches. Um, and, uh, which I think, you know, is great before we head down to Australia, which will be right after Christmas. Absolutely. So it looks like Ben Shelton has, uh, locked in the Australian open wildcard. Is it true or? Well, he did lock in, but he's not probably not going to need it because now yeah. he's top hundred in the world. Okay, so, so, um, so yeah, so Eubanks will get it exactly. So, so Eubanks was was rooting pretty hard for Shelton in that in that <laughs> la, in that finals the other day in Champagne. So he wasn't there, but we know he you know afterwards he he sent him a little text I think thanking him. So yeah, because now Eubanks will get that wild card. And they're all friends. I mean, I sometimes try to follow the challenger level, and this this generation of American players is. I think uh, they're all rooting for each other's success, and that's a uh, that's at least the impression we all get from far, which is good because uh, this I think the Taylor Fritz generation and then the Sebikura Nakashima generation, including Shelton, I think there's a lot of potential coming through the ranks. 
So a lot, a lot. And, you know, one thing about it, you know, just real quick, I think that that has helped is that, you know, you had that generation of Taylor and Tommy and Riley and Francis, right. And, and, um, you know, and, and those guys, you know, moved up pretty quickly and then they kind of stagnated for a little bit. And, and, and then you had, you know, Sebi and Brandon Nakashima and Jensen Brooksby coming up. And now all of a sudden people started saying, you know, oh, the next generation of great Americans is coming up. And, and I think it, you know, it, 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 it upset those guys, those other guys a little bit, really. And, and really, you know, lit a fire underneath them, right. To, to start, going again and and you know and and now you you have ben coming up as well and and you know and kovacevic and and then uh emilio JJ nava jj wolf. wolf exactly you know and 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 that's what we have now going right is you're just having these waves of guys you know and and, it, and they motivate each other and like you said they are good friends and they root for each other but they also too want to want to beat each other right and, and it also too it 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 helps because when one of them sees the other one doing something really well, they say, well, geez, if he can do it, why can't I do it? Right. And, 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 and they start believing and that's, that's half the battle. You know, that's half the battle is, is that they believe that they can compete at the highest level, you know, and you're going to see that now. And that's the great thing now about Taylor getting up inside the top 10 and Francis getting inside the top 20. And that's our next step is getting those more guys up there because we have now, I think it's, nine guys in the top 50 and eight of them are 25 or under. Right. And, 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 and so that's, that's what we want. And now it's just getting a few more guys up there in the top 10. And then hopefully one of these guys breaking through and winning a grand slam. You know, while you were naming these players, I was just can't help think, I think it looks like the U S tennis men's scene has really caught up with the world tennis men's scene. Both are the replica of generations. If you look at the Medvedev, as Zverev, Sitsipas, Rublev generation, and the next one of Alcaraz, Sinner. I think same thing happening in the U.S. I think pretty soon it's going to be the mesh. I think Taylor Fritz already made the ATP finals. France is knocking that door. And if the Koda Nakashimas and Sheltons make their way, I think we'll have more U.S. representation towards the top of the ranking like it used to be. It's, it's caught up in my view. Agreed. Agreed 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. It's an exciting time in, in, in American men's tennis. And... Um, you know, hopefully we can we can keep the momentum. Sure. So a couple of years ago, I had a chance of hosting your colleague, I guess, I don't, I don't think he's with the USG anymore, Jose Agaris. We did an episode and we talked about the ability to play on clay and how USTA has been, Jose told me, they've been kind of uh, mapping the schedule for uh, the Opelkas and the TFOs of the world to go and spend the extra week in Israel and then play Barcelona. So... Uh, how close are you to those conf- uh, conversations with the overall larger pool of U.S. players? I know Corda played Israel last year. So uh, it, it, do you have something similarly mapped out for Shelton if you enter the top 100 and the ranking goes in the right way? Is, is play something that you want to be yeah. part of his early schedule? Yes, 100%. 100%. I mean, we'll, you know, listen, first of all, you don't have a lot of options. I mean, you can either go play on clay, right? <laughs> and from, from basically from April through uh beginning of june right through the french open i mean you either go play on clay if you know or you don't have anywhere to play i mean you can yes go play challengers or something like that but if you're top 100 you you that's where you need to play or you don't play right and and uh but you know i'm i'm in 100 percent agreement with jose 
in regards to these guys playing on clay because if they learn how to play on clay, you can play on any surface, right? Because it just it it you have to learn how to construct points. And and you know, and 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 that is just such a huge part and that tra- transfers to any surface, right? And 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 so um it will be a big part of Ben's development. Um you know, and he's super excited to play on it because he's never, first of all, this kid's never, he's never been out of the United States ever for anything. (laughs) So, so yes. So, so he's super excited, you know, to get on the clay. He hasn't played on red clay. I mean, he's hit on the red clay at the USTA, but he's never played any tournaments on it. Um, So he's super excited. And, you know, what we'll probably do over there is, um, you know, which we do with the USTA, we have an agreement with uh, BTT and in Barcelona, um, you know, the Academy there. And, uh, that's where Francis Roy's, you know, who, um, who's coached Nadal for so long is based and, um, you know, who's an amazing coach and, um, you know, we'll, we'll probably use that for as a base over there and go over there and, and, and play a bunch of those tournaments and, um, you know, and develop his game. And, and I don't see any reason why Ben, once he, once he learns how to play on it, why he can't be really good on it because, his serve is still going to be super effective. And like you said, he's got a great kick serve and that's big. And, and um, you know, and he's willing to come forward and uh, you know, and, and does it pretty well. So there's no reason in my mind, once he, once he, he, you know, learns about it a little bit more and how to play and some of the, some of the different, you know, um, uh, you know, plays on the clay, um, you know, uh, strategy wise that, that he can't be a very good clay court player. So it's pretty clear. I mean, that's what Jose said, and that's what you're echoing. And I, I don't question that. I'm a novice from far. But going back to the yeah. Andy Roddick days, the, I used to remember a lot of interviews in Roddick and Blake used to say it's about the slide. Like uh, the Europeans slide into the stroke and the South Americans are the same and the Americans slide after hitting the stroke. So can that, this be taught to a Shelton or uh, a Nakashima or a Brooksby when they're like, looks like they're finished world-class products to embark the top 100? Some of, some of them already are. So how delicate of a transition is this? Do you tinker too much with what they know to make them an all-round player? Or you tinker it slowly? What's the roadmap for some, uh, you know, for, for this kind of transition to make them a better uh, play? Well, listen, each each player is different. And, and you know, the good thing about someone like Ben, and, you know, we haven't really talked about it, but I'm guessing, you know, that, uh, you know, he's probably played just from his time in Florida because we do have a lot of, you know, hard, true green clay courts, um, you know, which, which I grew up on, you know, down in, in Florida as well. It's not the same as red clay a hundred percent, but you still can kind of learn how to slide a little bit. And, and, and so, um, you know, if you have that, as opposed to say someone from California, like a Taylor Fritz, who probably, you know, growing up, you know, except when he did come to Boca for, for USDA camps, probably didn't play much on clay at all. So that helps. Um, you know, and each one's different. I mean, each person's different depending on, you know, how their, their coordination, their balance, um, you know, because that's so, so much of what the sliding is. And, um, you know, so uh, it, it's something that it's going to take some, some players a little bit longer to, to get. And then other players, you know, are going to get it quicker. And, um, you know, I, I think for Ben, um, I think he'll probably get it pretty, pretty quick. I mean, the thing about these kids too nowadays you know, is, is these guys all slide on hard courts anyways. Right. Right. I mean, it's amazing how much they slide on hard courts. So, 
um, you know, it's, but th there are different little idiosyncrasies, right. That they will have to pick up about the movement on the clay and, and it takes time. You can't, you can't rush it. You know, it's, it's definitely something that will, will take some time. Sure. So you said hard to, and again, I should have done my homework. I, I assume like, again, assuming is not doing anyone any favors, but when UST moved its headquarters to Orlando and clay was a big roadmap, I think Patrick McIndoe had said openly. So I thought there would be red clay in there. So what is our fixation with keeping hard to when the world, or, you know, some like the Federer's and the Djokovic's, they all grew up in clay. Nadal is Nadal, but Federer and Djokovic are absolutely world-class in clay. So why not our base is set up on the red clay? Can't we have a mixture of both? Is it like a geographical thing or is just USTS preference to keep the green clay? As a no, no, no. From, actually, no, from the USTA, we have six Italian red clay courts here in, in Lake Nona. We do. We did have okay. them built. Yes, yes. So we, but I'm talking about more from Ben just playing like, you Got know, it. tournaments <laughs> in Florida because, you know, a lot of the tournaments in Florida are at clubs that have the green clay. You know, that the thing is, it's, it's, it's a lot more expensive, I believe. It, it's definitely you have to know how to for the red clay how to take care of it, um, you know, and and because it's a whole different animal in regards to maintenance and everything, and and uh, so I think that's why just in general, you know, in the United States, I mean, plus two, I guess you got to get the clay coming over from Italy or Germany or whatever, you know, so it's a lot more expensive. But we do at the United States, we have um, at the USTA, we have um, uh, six uh, Italian red clay courts. That we do a lot of, and that's the thing too, you know, is, is what I like to do a lot of times with my training blocks, even if, if the tournaments are going to be on hard courts, may, you know, say I have a three week training block for say the first week and a half, two weeks, I'll still have the guys on red clay, you know, one, because obviously the movement in, in constructing of points and two, just because it's, it's easier on their bodies. Right. And, and, um, you know, and so, uh, you know, uh, we, we will get out there in a lot of our camps that we do with juniors. With younger kids, um, we do on the red clay as much as we possibly can. Sure. So before we transition to your, you know, older proteges, you know, I want to talk something about Roddick too. But uh, one more on Shelton and Kova. Someone who hasn't seen them play. Shelton, a lot of people have. If you listen to this podcast, you know who Ben Shelton is, and you probably even know who Kova is. But uh, break their game down for like a fan who may be interested. The upsides and what you have worked on. Don't have to reveal all the secret of the sauce, but I mean, are they quick from side to side? It's a kick serve. Do they come to the net? Just give, give an intro to someone who may be interested in these two guys. Right. Well, well, Ben, first of all, one huge asset that he has is that he's lefty <laughs> and, and that's, and that's big. And then, you know, and then he's got a big lefty serve and, uh, and he can hit all the different serves. He can hit the, the bomb. He can, he can slide it. Um, he's got a great kick. Um, and so now it's just a matter of him um, understanding how to be most effective using all his different serves. Um, and he's been great. You know, that's one of, I think, the big things that I've been really trying to stress with him. And, and you know, and Brian is, is 100% on board with this is just because, listen, kids, right? I mean, usually the, what's the thing that they're really, that really, you know, turns them on is speed. Right. You know, and so the need for speed and, um, you know, and, and, and so coming in, that's what he would do. You know, he wanted to go big and then he'd mix in the kicker every once in a while. So now it's understanding like now he's developed uh, uh, that, you know, between probably 97 and, and 103 
uh, wide serve on the ad side that hits up in the box that just breaks away from the person that, you know, the person has no chance unless they're, you know, cheating and standing way over there. So now he's developed that serve, um, you know, and now when he can hit that one, now he can hit the bomb T and he doesn't have to hit it at, you know, on the ad side, he doesn't have to hit it at 140. It can be, you know, 128, 130, right? And, and, and he doesn't have to hit it right on the line and it's going to be just as even more, you know, just as effective. You know, he's still going to hit an ace on that because guys are going to have to guess, right? And then now you couple that with the, with the body serve, right? All of a sudden someone, you know, so now they have to, because the one on the, on, is breaking out wide, they have to move in a little bit because if they stand too far back, Right. Then now he, you know, he hits it out there and he serves in volleys and they're way out of position. So now they stand up. So now he sees that and he hits the bomb right at their body at 135. Right. So again, it's like a good pitcher, right? No matter how good of a fastball you have, right? If you're throwing fastballs all the time, the hitters are going to catch up to it and they're going to hit it a long way. And it's the same thing. Guys are just returning better and better. And if you're predictable, right, then it's it's easier for them to do. So, you know, that's just that's that's the first thing with him. Um, along with the fact that um, he moves really well, especially for a kid his size. There's not one ball out there on the court that he doesn't think he can get to. Um, you know, he can volley, um, still needs to do a better job of, of moving forward more. Um, you, know, and, and, um, you know, and then probably his biggest, a couple of big things is one, the kid is so competitive. I mean, he just, he just doesn't want to lose doesn't want to lose. And I think a good example of that was in this finals the other day in Champaign, you know, he, he'd won 14 straight matches, two tournaments in a row, um, you know, had the wild card sealed if he need, you know, for, for the Australian open, um, you know, and, and was in the final and lost the first set six Oh. And most guys I think would have just been, okay, it's just not my day. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm in a good spot. But he really wanted to get top 100. He really wanted to, to get in that draw at the Australian Open and not have that WC next to his name. And, um, you know, and, and he came back and won the match. And, and that shows, you know, just the, the, the guts he has and the heart and the, and the competitiveness that he has. You know, and that along with just his, his ability in the big moments to go for his shots. I mean, he's, you know, he's so far what I've seen, he's super clutch and that's huge. You know, that's, that's what separates the, 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 the great ones from the rest of the pack. And, um, you know, and so far what I've seen, he has that also. So, you know, that's a little bit about him and in regards to Kova, I mean, Kova's a shot maker. He's, a, I mean, this kid, I mean, you know, he, he recently made the, this fall made the semifinals of the ATP 250 in Seoul. Uh, Korea. And in the first round, he beat uh, Kizmanovic. And he basically, he beat him four and four. And, sorry? Beat also Mackie McDonald there, right? If I'm not sure. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes. But in the match against Kizmanovic, I mean, he beat him four and four. And he basically took the racket out of his hand. Wow. You know, and, and that's pretty tough to do. But he just, he blew him off the court. And to where Kizmanovic was kind of looking at his coach you know, shrugging and going like, you know, what do I do? Who is this guy? You know, cause obviously didn't really know him, you know, yeah. and, and cause at that point I think he was, you know, maybe 200 or something. And, and uh, yeah. And so he has that ability. The thing for him is, is um, he's got, he's got really sweet strokes. I mean, you know, especially backhand, he's got a really pretty one-handed backhand. Um, you know, he, he volleys 
reasonably well. He needs to move forward more, um, you know, because too many times he, you know, he has his, his firepower, but he doesn't capitalize on it and lets guys, you know, stay in points a little too long. Um, you know, but a big thing for him is just consistency, um, you know, a little too up and down. And, uh, you know, that'll come with him being more consistent with his day-to-day routines in regards to his work ethic and, you know, both on and off the court, you know, the other, the other stuff too, you know, the gym, mental skills, you know, all that stuff, because those are huge parts of it. Absolutely. So there you go, Tennyson, Action listeners, the coach has spoken, follow these guys. Ben Shelton's going to be in the main draw, hopefully, and then Kovacevic should be making the fun experience in the qualifying. So this coach, does this ranking get discussed in, in the training blocks? Like, like Kova is 174. So when you sit down with him or the other coaches, what kind of a roadmap ranking has? Of course, if you win matches, you're going to take care of it. But where do players and coaching teams see, okay, the next goal is say, are these conversations happening? Be 100 by, say, March. It's a big jump, but, you know, you win a couple of challengers. You can, you can you know, erase uh, some ranking points, say, but talk about that, please. Um, well, you know, obviously you talk about it from – from the standpoint of goals. Um, but for me, I, I don't, I don't bring it up that much just because again, like you said, if you're winning matches, right, you're, you're going to move up. And the way to win matches is by working hard and, and, and doing the right things on a day-to-day basis, right. And having a good attitude. And um, you know, so I, I like to fo- focus more on that, on the process Right. And, and because that's the stuff really that I have control of, obviously, right. Is, is, is their training, right. Doing the right things. Um, again, teaching them, you know, what this is all about to be a professional tennis player. Um, you know, so, uh, so that's more of the stuff that I focus on now, you know, and I try not to get them because again, if, if you're worried so much about your ranking and the points, right. What does that do? That just puts more pressure on you. Right. And, 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 and so, again, I, I feel like you control the controllables. Right. And, and do your best to control those. And, um, you know, and the other stuff will take care of itself. Um, now, obviously, from a schedule standpoint, you have to look at it. Um, you know, with Alex, uh, you know, he'll be on the border of, of I think, getting in some qualities of, uh, you know, of some tour events, um, you know. And uh, and so that's what I'd like to start if possible, um, you know, and, and again, he'll be in the qualities of the Australian Open. Obviously, if he has a good start to the year, then he should be able to get in the qualities of some of the, the ATPs in the U.S., you know, um, uh, Dallas and Delray Beach and, uh, you know, and then hopefully um, Indian Wells and Miami, right? But he's going to have – he's actually, I think, at 158 now um, after last week. So, um, you know, if he has a couple of good results at the beginning of the year, you know, then, then he, he – could be there you know and then in regards to Ben I mean you know obviously it was a goal for him you know to be top 100 um I think if you you know I don't think it was a goal I I don't think because obviously we didn't really talk about it I mean when I started working with him in in June um it was just kind of you know let's 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 go and see how the summer goes and it's obviously kind of taken off and don't really think about it um you know, and again, he's winning matches and he's moving up and, and that's what it's about. And, you know, so starting off the year, he'll play, you know, these ATPs and, and obviously he'll play the Australian Open. He will be in the main draw. Um, and, um, 
you know, and then we'll go from there. I mean, if he's winning matches, we'll stay there. If he's not winning matches, then, then, you know, might have to go back and play a challenger here or there. So, you know, it's just so crucial that, you know, these guys get to a level where they're, where they're winning some matches because obviously, you know, there's nothing that, that breeds confidence like winning matches. And, and so it's important to do that. Sure. Before we go to Roddick, two other names that I meant to ask you. One is a late bloomer, Marcus Giron. You know, he's had a career year. He's 29. And then there's Michael Moe, who's same age as Kova. I think he's 24. So mm-hmm. so how does the UST factor in guys who haven't, you know, who could be a late bloomer? Is there any support from the Federation for, say, for Giron? I mean, Moe still is young. He's 24 from my vantage point. But how does the UST work with uh, guys who have made a later breakthrough? than say some of the uh, younger guys. Right. Well, you know, um, I mean, we help, listen, we help any way we can um, from a standpoint of, of like Marcos, you know, he trains out at our facility in Carson, California, you know, and, and they have a good group out there, you know, with him, Taylor, Stevie Johnson, um, you know, there's some really good juniors out there also. Um, you know, Nakashima will probably spend a little bit of time there. Uh, Zach Svida, he's another one of the young players. Um, so, and then obviously, uh, you know, he's, he's at a point now where he has his own coach, um, you know, forever at a tournament, if I'm at a tournament and, you know, uh, Marcos needs something, he knows he can, you know, that I'll help him. And then what we usually do is, is, uh, you know, he has access to, our strength and conditioning coaches when he is at Carson or if he comes to Orlando. Um, also, we usually send um, strength and conditioning coaches to the slams. So he has access to them, um, you know, and same with mental skills, um, you know, uh, our mental coaches, he has access for them also, um, you know, and then obviously if there's anything else that he feels we can do for him, um, you know, we're happy to do it. Uh, you know, and same with Michael, Michael, Michael's the same, um, you know, again, one of our promising young players and, you know, we, we help him, um, you know, it was last year he was working with one of our coaches full-time Troy Hahn and, uh, you know, spent a fair amount of time here in Orlando. And, uh, you know, when I see Michael at like these challengers, he was at these challengers, you know, he knows that if there's anything I can do to help him that I'm, I'm there to help. Yeah, it's good to know there's such a good network between, you know, all the USTA and the players. So the results are there. So let's take a trip yeah. back to uh, memory lane with Andy Roddick. You coached okay. him in 2005 when he was, yes, yeah, a big jump from, you know, Shelton Corda. Yeah, you know, I don't want to keep you here too long. It's a good conversation, but yeah. So Roddick was on my mind. I spoke with Roger Rashid a few weeks ago and he was coaching Hugh at that time. So what was the landscape of ATP when he took over the Roddick job? I'm sure the expectations were clear. He was already a major winner, vying for top titles. Of course, the Federer guy was making his move. He's already the best player. So remember, just recall some of uh, the things that you worked on, the results. It was a pretty good year. He made a Wimbledon final, right? Australian semis. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, what it, do you remember from that year? It's interesting because, yeah, pretty much for anybody else, it would have been a great year. I mean, he won, he won five titles that year on, I think, four different surfaces. Um, like you said, made the Wimbledon final, um, you know, made the Australian open semifinal, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, finished the year ranked three in the world. And, uh, and it was a disappointing year, um, for him and, and, you know, learned a lot from that with Andy because, um, 
you know, the thing was that that Andy at the beginning of the year was number two in the world behind Roger. And, um, you know, the year before he had finished, you know, uh, so I worked with him in 2005 and 2003 he finished number one in the world. Then yep. in 2004, he fell to number two behind Roger. So his his main goal was to get back to number one. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, unfortunately, at the end of the year, he fell to number three because that Nadal guy passed him. Right. And uh, <laughs> and so so, you know, and it was disappointing. Um, but, you know, learned a lot from the standpoint of that, you know, it, it's good to set those goals, but also to because I felt like. He had a great year, um, you know, from, for the most part, I mean, one real disappointment that year was his first round loss at the U S open. That was a big disappointment. He lost to Jill um, Muller, uh, yep. six, six and six. And that was, that was very disappointing. Um, Cause obviously his home slam and really wanted to do there. Um, I think if, if he does, you know, if he wins that match, I mean, you know, he's got a good chance of at least make the semifinals, just the way things turned out. You know what I remember. Um, you know, and two, Andy had the kind of a way of once he got through the first round, um, you know, he would get going. You know, sometimes he struggled to get through the first round, um, I think, just because of the pressure he put on himself. Um, but, you know, to go back to really, I think, how to handle that. I mean, he, he so he had a great year results wise. He really became a better player. Um, he had some good results on clay that year. Um, you know, he won Houston. Um, made the, I think it was the third round of the French that year, maybe, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, but, um, you know, so yeah, I, I think it was, it, it, it just to look at that and look at the big picture and focus on the process, you know, as, a, as, a, in, in, you know, as opposed to, okay, I'm number two, I want to be number one. Right. And, and, and because of that, you know, it was, you know, it said there was a sense of disappointment where, you know, I felt like he had a, a really, really good year, you know, and, and became a better tennis player. Um, you know, but the thing about Andy, I mean, I just I, I really, really enjoyed working with Andy because this guy, I mean, his work ethic was second to none. You know, and whenever people talk about him being like a disappointment, you know, I just laugh and I say, are you kidding me? I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, this guy just got the most out of everything he possibly could because he had an amazing work ethic. And his, the way he competed day in and day out was second to none, you know, and, and, um, you know, so for me, it was a pleasure to work with him, um, you know, and, and I learned so much, uh, you know, from that year with a little over a year with him. And um, yeah, I mean, he just, he, he was, he was an amazing player, amazing competitor and uh, you know, just, just a lot, a lot of fun. Sure. And again, you know, with Roddick in mind, I have a question because he appears on these tennis channel uh, match review shows with, you know, Steve Wiseman and Jim Courier. He's an absolute student of the game and he seems like a very sharp guy, the way he breaks oh, yeah. down the game for novices like ourselves. We, we learn a lot. So just what do you remember from coaching then? How did Roddick consume data? And then I have a bigger question on data after Roddick, if you want to just answer, like, uh, what were the conversations like, you know, when you're coaching a top two guy, uh, are these guys stubborn? I mean, how do you introduce change there and, and how much data you use to say, support an argument? Right. Right. Yeah. No, Andy, Andy is an extremely, extremely stubborn person. And it's actually funny now because, you know, I'm, I'm good friends with him still and, and, you know, and I know his family. And so, 
you know, spend time with him and his, his kids and his daughter is extremely stubborn. So sometimes they butt heads and I just kind of laugh because it's just, you know, it's kind of kind of payback for him because he still is stubborn. But, um, you know, the, the way to, to, you know, that that you had to really present stuff to Andy is is kind of do it in a way to where he felt like he was the one coming up with it, you know, so. So, um, you know, you kind of throw an idea out there and kind of plant a seed. And then you'd hope that, you know, by asking questions and maybe giving some data, you know, um, that he would then be, which he usually did, you know, he would be the one that would, would come up with it, you know, and then he, you know, and it was great because then he took ownership for it. Right. As opposed to some players where, you know, the coaches tell him things and then it doesn't work because listen, things aren't always going to work. Right. And then, and then the coach is right. And then the player right away blames the coach, right? It's their fault, right? Where, you know, listen, we can give our players data, but right. Ultimately they're the ones that need to make the decisions out there on the court. Right. And, and so, you know, there's, there's understanding that, you know, and understanding when things work and when they don't work and that they're not going to work all the time. Right. And, and being able to look at that big picture and understand the whole thing. Um, so, with Andy, you know, that was kind of the way I went about it, um, you know, and tried to keep things pretty simple. You know, he didn't he didn't want things to be complicated. And sometimes I actually just because I, I had gone from, you know, um, working seven years with Todd Martin, who is a very cerebral person. And we had some very in-depth conversations and, and, and you know, and, and sometimes, you know, with with a lot of different ideas, um, you know, to someone like Andy who wanted it kept simple and and. Um, you know, so at times I maybe gave a little too much, um, but, you know, again, it was another learning experience for me as a coach and, and has helped me in, in my development, you know, to, to better understand the player and what their needs are and how to present information to them. I'm sure Andy Roddick was a top job in the business and he was better with you and you became better. I mean, it's a mutual exercise. So I'm sure you both benefited. So my larger point on data is, uh, you know, you also, I think, work with Aaron Crickstein, if I'm not mistaken, and then Todd Martin. So from all yep. these years, and from Roddick years, especially to the Seb Coda, Ben Shelton years right now, there's a lot of data in sports, more data that we can consume. So how has the coaching toolkit changed? Uh, how do you rely on data after matches? Is it like after every match? Is it after a week? Is assessment? How do you feed data to your players? And and how do you have to simplify it for certain players? Because, you know, all the analysis these days, data is king. But at the same time, I want to see what is the reality at the ground level. How are you guys consuming data, say, from the 2005 collaboration with Roddick to, say, the 2021 collaboration with Coda? Right. Um, well, uh, you know, first of all, and I, and I forgot to mention it. I mean, you know, at the USTA, we have um, an analytics department. And, um, and these guys are unbelievable. And the things they do for our players, I mean, it, it's just invaluable. Um, you know, because like you said, it is a big part of the game now. And, and, and not only tennis, but all sports. And, and what these guys do, like just an example of at the Grand Slams, or well, at, the, at you know, the Grand Slams, um, I mean, at the U.S. Open, they set up shop there at Flushing Meadows. At the other Grand Slams, they, you know, they, they send it to me. But basically, whenever one of our it doesn't matter who it is, but all of our American players have access to this, they will do basically like a scouting report on the player that they're going to play as long as it's not another American. Right. And they'll send that to the, to the player's coach. 
right? And then obviously it's their job to, to decipher it and figure out how much they really want to to give to the players and what's pertinent and what's important and then, you know, and, and all that stuff. But, um, but, you know, so that's a huge part. And we provide that to all our, you know, when you were asking about what we provide to like, say a Marcos and a, and a Michael, I forgot about that. And that's something that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, and, and yeah, it's changed a lot. I mean, I remember when I was with Todd and, you know, I was one of the only coaches that did it, but, you know, because I've always kind of, you know, been into that stuff and, and, uh, you know, the analytics and, you know, back in, so this was maybe, I don't know, 90, let's say 98, 97, somewhere around there. Um, you know, it was the, the computer stuff was run back then by IBM. It might still be now. And so there would be a printout after every match of like, maybe like 10 pages, you know, at Wimbledon of like, just the kind of a synopsis of the point where the person served and everything. And it would help me getting, cause that's a big part for me really in the analytics is, 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 is serving tendencies, right? Because obviously if you, if someone has some serving tendencies and you can figure out what they are, right. That gives you a big advantage. So, you know, I used to do that back then. Now, now it's changed so much. I mean, they have, um, you know, like we have cold plays, play the, your opponent's cold plays, plays that, that, you know, they win a majority of the points when they do the, uh, sorry, hot plays are when the, when the majority cold plays are that they lose, you know, ones and get. And so again, we get all this different stuff as, you know, as, is also to, you know, the serving locations and first serve, second serve, break points, um, you know, uh, 30 all points, all that kind of stuff. So, um, and again, it's just each, each coach, has to look at it and and then decide on, you know, some players like more, I think like a player like Taylor, I think likes a lot of that stuff um, with Sebi. Um, you know, I, I would give him some, but you know, Sebi <laughs> sometimes, you know, he, he would then, you know, if I'd said, okay, this person serves a majority, you know, I had to be careful because I'd say if this ser- person served, the majority of their break points when they were down break point, you know, at a wide on the ad side and he was looking at it, didn't happen. You know, he'd get a little pissed <laughs> off. So, 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 you know, I would hear it a little bit. So, so, you know, I, I, I would, you know, again, say, listen, that was against this person, you know, why don't you notice? So what I would like them to do then is, is, is notice that notice what was happening. Right. And, and so maybe on a break point at two all, you know, you, 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 you don't guess, right. And, and you don't anticipate that it's going to go wide and you see what they do. But now if they had, you had a break point at two all and you had a break point at three all and they, they went wide both times, right. At four all, if you're getting another break point, you better sit on that wide serve, right. Because obviously that's where they like to go. And again, it doesn't mean they, they, that that's the only place they're going to go, but you know, again, you, you, you know, you're going to look at the tendencies you know, and, and again, it depends too on how good their serve is, right? If you're getting to play on their serve anyways, then you don't really maybe need to guess, right? But if you're not getting a play on it, then then you might yeah. need to anticipate, right? So you know, you know, you've answered like so many questions that fans might have. Now we know why all these years Tommy Haas, Andy Murray were giving business to the coaching box. So these are the things that sometimes we don't get. And you answered yes. I mean <laughs> you you said yes. he, he serves you know wide and deuce he didn't he went down the tee and you know that, that explains some of those conversations <laughs> exactly yes it does <laughs> yes it does so, so with data again the, another word that in the fan world that's got thrown out in the analysis of tennis iq so now you you watch a lot of tennis 
not just your pupil. So can you teach a player tennis IQ? And then second part is, who do you think in today's tennis, whose tennis IQ are you most impressed with of the current players that are on the ATP tour? I'm sorry, could you, I didn't hear the first part of the question. What was the first part? First part is like, uh, is if there's a thing, a tennis IQ in the coaching manual, can you make a player's IQ get better in tennis? Either you have it, that's how I see it, or can you, is, 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 is that a natural you, asset? That's what I'm saying. Well, I think, listen, first of all, it comes from them watching tennis, right? And that's why it's so important for, for younger players to watch tennis, right? Because you can learn so much, I mean, from it. I mean, you know, and then, and then obviously talking about it. I mean, you know, you look at a guy like Seve who has a very high tennis IQ, right? And, and from a young age, he watched it. He watched his dad play, watched Radek Stepanek, who his dad coached play, you know, and then, you know, these kids now too, you know, they can get it everywhere. I mean, you have this tennis TV, you know, and, and they have it on their phones. And so they're watching matches. And, and, and so it's definitely something that, that, you know, it helps if you're around it, but I also think you can teach them. I mean, I know just with Ben, you know, in regards to, um, you know, the, the, input that I've given him, you know, and in regards to serving, you know, that, that he's, he's doing much better. I see now, I can see his mind at work now, you know, when, when, when he's out there, you know, on the court and, and trying to, you know, to mix his serves and, and, you know, in the locations and the spins and the speeds, um, you know, and, and, and it's nice. The best thing is when as a coach, you're up there and it's like a big point and you're saying, okay, I'd like to see the, you know, the, the, the kick, you know, up to the backhand here and serve and volley and then they do it. Right. And then, and so that's, you know, that's something that obviously you, you really, you know, strive to as a coach, you know, that you guys are on the same wavelength. And, and uh, so it's definitely something that, that you can um, teach. Right. I mean, and, and uh, you know, and, and again, the more they watch, I think the better they get at it too and the higher their, their IQ uh can be uh with, with the world talent right now we talked a lot about the american pool of players who are you most impressed of course alcaraz is number one so let's leave him out of the conversation holger has made his move yannick sinner's in the conversation muzetti is there uh, who do you see at the world level that catches your attention it's a wow this guy will be really good or is there anyone that i haven't spoken about yeah i mean those are listen those those are a lot of the guys um you know, I think, you know, who has um, some good young players now is, um, well, I, I, I like a lot this uh, Jack Draper. Jack Draper, I think, uh, has has a very bright future. Um, you know, again, I kind of equate him, you know, Ben a little bit to like him. I mean, again, a lefty, you know, pretty big serve. It hits the ball pretty well from the ground. Um, you know, I, I, I think he's going to be a, a very good one. Um, you know, and then, uh, and then also this kid, I think, uh, uh, Dominic Stricker from, from Switzerland, you know, again, another lefty, you know, I think the, the lefties have a big advantage, you know, I mean, you look, I mean, like to me and not nothing against them, you know, nothing against them, but I, I don't think that Cam Norrie would be top 10 in the world if he, if he was righty, you know, and, 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 and listen, you know, again, he's a great player. And you talk about a guy with an amazing, amazing work ethic and a student of the game. So obviously all those things, and he'd still be a very good player, but I just don't know if he would be top 10 if he wasn't lefty. You know, you just, for me, it's a big advantage being lefty. 
Absolutely. So a couple more questions, I'll let you go. I think we I got more than what I bargained for. This has been an amazing conversation. So one personal question. Yeah. So I've been trying to convert some of my close friends who are also tennis geeks into Seb Corda believers. So what are the conversations when USTA gave the reins of Corda to you and, you know, you all believed in him. So just the package is amazing as far as I, I'm concerned, but a lot of my friends believe he's 22 and he's trending a little behind. So what do you tell them to become believers? Well, first of all, I mean, you know, you know, just to, to straight, I mean, they, you know, they didn't set, give me the reins. I mean, Peter's always been, you know, and always will be kind of the, you know, the head of, of Sebi's, you know, tennis mm-hmm. program. Yes. in his game and everything. And he's done an amazing job of it. And, um, you know, but fortunately for me, you know, Peter and I, we knew each other from, from, uh, you know, when he played, when I was out there with Todd and, so he had a respect for me, um, you know, as a coach and, you know, and, and things worked out very well there, you know, between the two of us. And, um, you know, so that was something with that, but, you know, Sebi, listen, everybody has their own path, you know, everybody has their own path and there's, you know, there's guys that develop earlier, like say an Alcaraz and, and a big part of it, you know, that it has to do with their physical maturity, right. As well as their mental maturity, right. You know, mentally. And, and, and so, um, you know, Sebi physically just, you know, wasn't ready um, for, for that. And I also think too, from a, from a, um, you know, a mental standpoint too. I mean, you know, um, I think he's, he's, he's much, much better now. I think he's in a good place um, mentally and physically he's coming along and um, you know, listen, he's got the weapons he's got, you know, and he's, he's been around it. Listen, that's, that family is a family of winners. Right. And, and obviously, you know, between his sisters and, and Peter and Regina, you know, they're, they're, they're all, they all know what it takes. And that's a big part of it too. And he's got an amazing uh, support system between his whole family and some of the other people that are around him. Um, you know, and, and he's got the tools. I mean, that kid, his hands are incredible yeah. um, for his size. He moves extremely well. Um, high tennis IQ. There's just, you know, to me, it's like, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for him not to continue to develop, you know, just because they, they do all the right things. Um, he does all the right things and he's got that, that, um, you know, that support staff around him, you know, that performance team and, you know, and, and, you know, Peter knows what it's all about. He has the experience to, to, you know, to get there. And, and even though things are definitely a little different, and, and, um, you know, but in, in Sebi's figuring those things out now, you know, and, and I, I truly think he'll, he'll continue to move up the rankings. Yeah. From my novice naked, I, I became a Corda fan. Of course, the backhand is amazing. I, I, I could see the side to side movement and ability to absorb pace and then redirect the second or third ball and make the rally neutral. So I, I'm saying, okay, that's like world-class movement, which I saw a couple of years ago. And now, uh, hopefully he comes of age and puts up the numbers, but that's that's when I was sold to the idea, and I still yeah. think it's a blue chip stock. Yeah, <laughs> I agree, and and I think a big thing for him too, which he he's starting to do now more, is just have the confidence in his in his net game and moving forward. I mean, because he has um, he really has amazing hands, and 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 he volleys extremely well, and obviously with his wingspan, right, he can cover a lot of the net, and um, you know, and and so you know besides that, then the more he's going to do it, right. The more comfortable he's going to get up there, the more, you know, big part of volleying is one positioning, 
right? Which the more you do, you, you get a better idea of where your positioning should be up there, as well as what types of volleys you should be hitting. You know, should I be angling it off more? Should I be going deep with this volley, keeping in front? Should I be going to the open court? Right. And, and again, these all get better with experience and, and he's definitely doing it more and more. And I think, you know, you saw that uh, this fall, you know, in his, in, a, in his results in the indoors and how much he was coming forward. And, uh, you know, and another person, too, who's doing that, you know, is, is Francis Tiafo. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's going to that's going to help Sebi a lot. And I think he's starting to believe more and more and, and understand that that's, you know, the style of game that he needs to have and incorporate. Absolutely. So my last question before I let you go is a larger question from a coach's point of view. Uh, as fans, right, you know, we always uh, take some losses to heart. Like if a player loses a heartbreaker of a match, fans also suffer and then you keep talking about that. So in the coach's world, how does a coach absorb like a, a gut-wrenching loss? And how, how do you process it at, you know, at a coach's level? And are there any that still stay with you it could be from a challenger event could be from the rodic years could be from the crickston years just share with the listeners here um well in regards to some tough losses that i've you know experienced being a coach of players i mean a couple i mean one was you know my first year with todd at wimbledon you know in 96 when you know he was up 5-1 in the fifth set against mal washington in the semifinals oh, i remember and, that one. And, oh, yeah yeah and and you know and he wasn't going to have to play that guy named sampras in the finals so you know which which you know he was going to richard krychek who was playing great but still it wasn't pete sampras so um that was that was a tough one um you know and and then probably to uh you know, Andy in the, in the semifinals, um, you know, at the Australian Open in, in 05 when he lost to Hewitt. Hewitt. Yeah, exactly where, yeah, yeah. And then losing, you know, the, the tough one, I think, I think the third set he lost 7-6, um, you know, and then that was to play Safin in the finals, who I don't think Andy ever lost to, you know. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, those are two tough ones. Um, uh, but you know, the thing you have to look at and what I try and do from each one is, is did that loss, you know, help them in the long run? And with Todd, it definitely did because for Todd, um, you know, bottom line, I mean, he choked, you know, he choked and, um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, so it, 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 you know, then though, after that, he, he addressed it, you know, he, he got some help from mental in his mental skills and, um, you know, and then, what was it three years later and, you know, in the semifinals of the, of the U S open, um, you know, in 99, I believe it was against peeling, you know, he, he was able to close the match out. And so, you know, again, it, it, you know, that experience there as much as you, you know, you wish it didn't happen, it happened, but it, you know, Todd improved become a, from it and became a better player in the, in the future. So, you know, that's the way, and, you know, in regards to Andy's, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it did help him. Uh, you know, there were some parts that it did help him, you know, in regards to understanding that he did need to do a better job of, of you know, moving forward in, in matches, closing some, uh, you know, trying to close points out at the net, um, you know, and, and I think by the end of that year, he did a better job of that. He beat Leighton in the semifinals that year in Cincinnati, um, which was a good win for him. And, and uh, you know, and I think moving forward too, 
um, did a better job against Leighton and players like that, you know, and just, uh, you know, trying to, to move forward and finish things off at the net. So, um, so I think, you know, it helped him as well. Were you in Sebi's box this year when he couldn't close Rafa at Indian Wells? I was, yes, yes, yes. And that was a tough stretch, you know, and, and again, <laughs> I think, you know, that helped well because that year. And so in Delray, in, in, in Delray, um, you know, he, he served for the match against Nori in the, in the quarters and lost it. Exactly. Served for the match there. And then, and then, you know, uh, obviously that against Rafa. So, um, you know, it was definitely a stretch there where, you know, it started to become maybe, you know, not maybe it started to become a little bit of mental, um, but, um, you know, he, he's overcome it and, and really hasn't had too many problems the rest of the year doing it. And, uh, you know, you guys talk about that right away. I mean, sorry, I keep asking, but I'm just, (laughs) yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you know, listen, you don't want to make too big of a deal of it. You, I think you, you know, we talk about it more about in the standpoint of what could you have done differently and why did it happen? Right. And then, and then, but when it continues to happen like that, again, you don't, you know, you don't want to say, you know, you don't want to make a, a huge deal of it, but also too, it's something that does need to be addressed. I mean, you, you know, it, 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 it's kind of like, you know, the elephant in the room and, and you say, Hey, you know, this has happened. What, what do we need to do differently? You know, and, and, and again, you know, I think part of that, you know, a big part of that is mental skills. And, and because, you know, I, I think and it was, you know, it's kind of finally coming, you know, to where it's not like a, you know, a stigma that you know, it used to be, well, if you worked with a, you know, a sports psychologist or, you know, we like to call them, you know, mental skills coach, that there was something wrong with you, but it, that's not the case at all. You know, it's just like, you know, you have to go out there and work on your forehands and your backhands and you have to go in the gym and work on your strength. You know, you need to, you need to, you know, have a mental skills coach and someone that, you know, helps you to train your brain, you know, because it's just like, it's just like all those other things. If you don't ever work on it, right. It's, it's, you know, you're not going to be able to maximize your full potential because, you know, there's certain exercises that you, that you need to do, right. To, to be able to, really get everything that you can out of out of your you know your brain and the mental part of the game yeah that's that's really good and it's amazing and you know here from our point of view we are quick to label someone a choker but you know there's a whole process and these guys are trying their absolute best to not you know get caught up in a similar situation but you know from the armchair critic it's very easy but 100 percent and and yeah you know and just one last thing is that you know anybody that ever tells you right that they don't don't get nervous and that they don't get tight is lying because that's normal. It's just, you know, the ones that, that, you know, are, are, are the champions are the ones that are understand it, accept it, and then able to deal with it. Right. And, and, and get through it. And, you know, and, and that's where, again, having routines and that sort of stuff, you know, makes a big difference. Hi, thanks again, Dean Goldfine. This was amazing. I enjoyed it. Hopefully my listeners would love it. And maybe we can have you back on the show sometime soon. Anytime, anytime, Saki. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate it.